How are most creators with degrees in creative fields, especially high art, living today? What are some of the unexpected ways they're navigating the world of uncertain arts funding, dwindling local art scenes, and the attention economy? And what might we learn from them? My name is Emma Katrovas, I'm an opera singer turned experimental performer, and I decided to find out, one artist at a time. Each creator I interview is an answer to how to live as an artist today, and there are as many answers as there are artists. If you like the idea behind this podcast, consider subscribing to the newsletter sent out on the 13th of every month. You can find all the relevant links in the description. Here's to being on the verge. And the fish were frightened. So beautiful. My father is the luckiest person I know. He grew up in cars, the oldest son of a criminal who bounced checks while lugging his family of seven across the United States. They lived from motel to motel and car to car, fleeing from the police, which meant my father and his four younger siblings missed much of elementary school. The two times his father, whom he calls Dick, was in prison, the rest of the family lived with his mother on welfare and public housing. My father's mother, Joan, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when my father was about 11, and soon after, when he was 13, he and his oldest younger brother were adopted by his middle-class aunt and her husband. Because his aunt's husband was in the Navy, my father lived in Japan in his teens and earned a second-degree black belt there before returning to the U.S. and getting degrees in poetry, including at the prestigious Iowa Writers Workshop. Long story short, he became a creative writing professor which is what he does to this day. My father calls himself an ex-poet, but really he's a poet who at some point started writing prose, and both as a poet and an ex-poet ultimately benefited from having such an unusual life story. He is also the founder of the Prague Summer Program for Writers, which sprouted from the 1990s American expat community in Prague, which represents the Czech interlude of his life and career, an interlude which accounts for my two sisters and me being Czech-American. I confess I interviewed my father more or less on a whim a day before he left to return from Prague to the U.S. after visiting my sisters and me for the holiday this past December, and I didn't necessarily plan to edit our conversation into an episode of this podcast because I wasn't sure if my father really fits what I would think of as an indie artist. What I realized, though, is that our conversation was one about myths. Personal myths, historical myths, cultural myths. My father's story can be framed as a manifestation of the American dream, or it can be understood, as my father has come to understand it, as a story of how lucky it was to be white in 1950s and 60s America. The format of this podcast, in which I ask artists to sing a song of themselves, to paraphrase Walt Whitman, really emerges from my growing up with storytelling and self-mythologizing, and I owe that to my father's influence, and so his voice really does belong in the Artists on the Verge series. In this conversation, my father and I talk about how, though he barely attended any elementary school, my father came to identify as a poet at around the age of 12. We talk about the Prague Summer Program for writers and its place within the American industry of creative writing. We talk about my father's upcoming book, Poets and the Fools Who Love Them, which is a book of essays about the American community of poets. We talk a lot about the Czech writer Arnold Lustig, both the myth and the man. 
And towards the end, we begin a conversation about how, in my opinion, the field of creative writing needs to face the multimedia landscape we live in more than it has done up until now, among other things. How did you get interested in poetry? That's an interesting story, too, that I've heard many times. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so tell me again. Well, yeah, when, when we lived in the Norfolk projects, one day, I think I was 11, I vaguely recall that it was a Sunday, and I vaguely recall it was in the afternoon. What I recall vividly is that I, you know, I was walking through the stacks of books that were lined up on these portable tables, and I just reached in. I took two, and I... And I ran like hell. I, I stole books. And well, can you just tell me what was? Why did you do that? Did you because they were there. Them? They were there. Was this the first time you stole something? Pretty much. You know, I was not a thief as a kid. It's a very. It's actually an interesting question. I've never. Uh, no one's ever asked me, and I've never asked myself. I don't know why I did it. The only other time I ever stole anything was putting one comic book inside another comic book, and then paying for just one. Yeah, I did that several times until Mr. Comstock caught me. <laughs> And then after that, I didn't do it because obviously I'd been caught. But this time, I just, you know, I stole two books. Did anyone see you? I, you know, probably not. I don't think anyone really gave a shit because they didn't expect anyone to steal books, <laughs> used books, you know, in a, a giant open air supermarket parking lot. But I did. And I ran and I ran and I, I went across this little bridge and I came around toward. And I, and I remember... I had the books and I was running, 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 and I stopped. And I was running, <laughs> put my hands on my knees and holding the books with one hand. <laughs> and I was breathing hard and I looked at what I'd stolen. And one of them was Lewis Uttermeyer's Treasury of Great Poems. And the other one was The Complete Poems of Robert Frost. I would note sometime later that they were Taiwanese pirated editions, which means they themselves had been stolen in the sense that they had been printed without concern for the fact that they were copyrighted. The universe gave me these stolen books and, you know, and the fact that I had stolen them was somehow, in my own mind, uh, negated by the fact that they ultimately had been stolen. So anyway, yeah, I, I, yeah, but I wasn't even able to make that rationalization until years later. So I took those books and, and, and I, I didn't know what they were. I didn't know what poems were. You know, I was a little animal. You know. So anyway, I had these two books and I would read them in a puzzled way. And, and I saw them as from another planet almost. I had no idea what this stuff was, but I was intrigued. You know, I was intrigued. So I read around in them a little bit and, and I kind of caught on to what they were. You know, I mean, at that age and considering where I came from and how little school I'd gone to, to that point, I, you know, I, I didn't know much and I, I kind of knew that it was poetry, but I, I didn't really know what that was. And I would go down to the Elizabeth River, which was just about a block and a half away from our apartment. And I would sit on the bank and watch the boats go by and I'd read these freaking books. And that was my entree. That was my entree to poetry. And I tried to imitate that. I would you know, I would write little, these little prayer-like poems that were horrible. And one day, I was doodling. You know, my mother was sick. My, my father was getting out of prison at some time in the near future. The man who had been my mother's lover for a while and was a very nice guy had departed because he knew it was the right time for him to do that, get it given that Dick was coming back. I was doodling in class. I was writing something, and, 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 and Mrs. Tunstall came along and looked over my shoulder and said, What are you doing, Ricky? 
And I said, I don't know. <laughs> and she, I said, I'm just writing. She said, she took it and she looked at it and she said, well, you're writing a poem. I said, okay. And she said, you're supposed to be doing your long division. And I said, okay. And she said, go stand in the corner. So I stood with my face in the corner for writing a poem. But then she talked to me later and, you know, she seemed to think it was kind of cool. And that was when I began to identify as a poet. <laughs> you know, so I identified as a poet, you know, at a very early age. And, you know, I kind of kept it secret, you know, because it was, it was, I wasn't proud of it, you know. <laughs> I, had, I, I didn't know to be proud of the fact that I, I did this, that I identified as a poet. But after a while, I, I would own up to the fact that I, I was indeed, you know, a poet. And then I came across a book called A Coney Island of the Mind by Lawrence Ferlinghetti. This was when I was 12, and it was right about, and it was right before Dick came out of prison. And that gave me an idea that it, it, that suggested to me that the way it was spoken could be colloquial. It was, it was street. It was edgy. It, was, uh, it sounded a little bit like song lyrics sometimes. So that, that, that idea of, of, of colloquial speech being appropriate for, for poetry was, was a revelation. Because what I had read, read even Frost, as collo relatively colloquial as he is, often sounds slightly elevated in a way that, of course, Ferlinghetti does not. Ferlinghetti is, is a free, writes in free verse. So I discovered Ferlinghetti before I discovered Walt Whitman, who stands behind it all. Yeah. And so that period of 11, 12 years old was when I w w really became a poet or identified as a poet. And that followed me through, you know, to, for the rest of my life. Until I became an ex-poet sometime in my 50s. <laughs> That kind of brings us to your upcoming book, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It brings us to... <laughs> Poets and the Fools Who Love Them? Poets and the Fools Who Love Them. It's a memoir and essays. What's your elevator pitch for that? If I were good at elevator pitches, I might be publishing with big presses, <laughs> you know, and publishing for bigger audiences than the ones that I've managed to scrape together. It's an exploration of the cottage industry of creative writing, as I have experienced it over the past 45 years. American creative writing. Yeah. Would you say yeah. that you also extend? Well, creative writing is American. Because, oh, okay. you know, there is no other creative writing. Creative what writing. About yeah. particular industries. Only. Yeah. What, what, I, what I mean is, 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 that, is that network of universities and colleges and, and organizations that promote the pedagogy of writing specifically writing that, that, that is centered primarily on the imagination. Even when one is speaking, I think, of, of memoir, that there, there, there is still the sense of the imagination having somehow reorganized and edited the facts as one remembers and misremembers them. Mm -hmm. But the elevator pitch, well, I haven't finished that, have I? The world of poetry is connected to this cottage industry of creative writing, but it is also something in some ways independent of it and represents a somewhat exclusive community, even within the auspices of creative writing. The story of the relation of the genres within creative writing has not been told. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, certainly, creative writing was binary, prose and, and, and verse, poetry and fiction. Now it is more pr prose and verse, 
you know, and the prose then bifurcates between, you know, that, you know, fact and fancy, basically. You know, and, and one of the, one of the uh, challenges of, of teaching creative nonfiction, for example, is, is, is simply f- defining it. Hmm. You know, I mean, it's an oxymoron, you know, creative nonfiction. You know, I mean, well, you know, when one speaks of getting creative with the truth, what do we <laughs> usually, it's usually a euphemistic, euphemistic way of, of characterizing a lie or some yeah. duplicity. Uh, just going back to your assertion that that uh, creative writing is an American phenomenon and linked to mm-hmm. the industry of teaching creative writing, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I mean, that really leads into the Proxima program, right? Yeah. Which you founded in what 1992, I believe. Yeah, it, it 93 was the first year that it that it kicked in. Yeah. Okay. So just uh, if you could tell the origin story of. Well, you know, it's I mean, there's the origin story, then there's the truth. From what I understood, the main reason you would even bother with such a thing, such oh. an undertaking, was. <laughs> Personal, and that that's was right. that's because right. you had this girlfriend and then later wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right. Who was mainly attached to you because you had a kid, and that was that's it. right. I promised Dominika Winterova, whom I married in 1993, that I would find a way for us to live in both countries, in uh, the United States and New Orleans and in Prague. And otherwise, I would not have had the resources to do so. We established a a relationship between the University of New Orleans and Charles University, specifically the uh, philosophical faculty of Charles University. And that was really the beginning of the program for all intents and purposes. 94 was when it became more official. Over the next three or four years, we were, we got up to like 50, 60, 70 students per semester, and we were you know na- advertising nationally, and we were on our way. And it was from that point. But it was a summer program. It was a summer program. It was a summer program, a month of July, and uh, but it was also much more diverse back then. You may, I mean, you probably have vague memories of the fact that we had Jewish studies, we had uh, different literature courses. We had, you know, culture, different culture study. We had photography, a very strong photographer for a number of years. We even had filmmaking. We had a very good filmmaking uh, person, uh, and, you know, and we, we were able to acquire all the equipment that we needed. And, you know, we were, you know, we were a $150,000, $200,000 operation that was grossing every, you know, every, every cycle. And, you know, and, and by the late 90s, we, you know, we, we had instituted, mid to late 90s, we instituted a low residency MFA program that was, a, that was attached to, to the study abroad feature of the Proxima program. And that was, that, was, that was really, in some ways, the golden age of the program because, it, you know, we had these incredible good graduate students uh, who were uh, coming every year, you know, to do their residency, you know, for their, for their uh, advanced degrees. What was Prague to you except just the birthplace of your child? But you know, but, but let me say something about that. Y- yes, it was born of necessity. However, you know, I bumbled my way here in 1989 on my Fulbright, the Fulbright that I got to be the writer in residence at the University of Ljubljana. Yeah, that's how I met her in the first place at the, at the Language Institute where I was studying Serbo-Croatian and she was teaching Czech. And, um, you know, we, we fancied one another kind of, I think, and, uh, and you were the result. <laughs> but be that as it may, you know, I, I was here during the Velvet Revolution. I saw, you know, I, I experienced it. I was I was there, and I, and I remember walking down the street and seeing old, real old women shaking their fists at police cars, because they, you know, they, they everyone assumed that that he, you know, they had killed this this student, you know, the the night before, uh, dur- during a peaceful protest, 
And, um, you know, and then that first time we went onto the square and, and, and it was totally, it was wholly spontaneous. Well, we went on to Winchester Square and, 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 and people were just mulling about and there was no leadership, there was no direction. It was just this incredible moment when all these checks on this gray November day in 1989 in Prague just, just gathered there. And it and and from that moment on, it became the gathering, you know, the primary gathering place. And just a few days later, you know, Havel standing on, you know, on the balcony and 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 with Dubček and 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 they held, you know, they held each other's hands in the air. And then the day after that, there was a sound system, and it just grew from there. And so, you know, just being in the midst of that, you know, as joyfully ignorant as I was of context and and history. I still felt that I was in the midst of something really historically important and, and, and quite beautiful. And so, you know, as I learned more about Charter 77, as I learned more about Havel, as I achieved some sense of the centrality of literature to the culture, to this small but mighty culture, really it was the spirit of Havel, the, the you know, the, the uh, playwright president that was very much behind the Prague program. That connection between the ethos of the Velvet Revolution and my sense of the ethos of, of 60s counterculture in America, that dynamic connection is the loci, it seems to me, of, of the Proximer program. And so, so it wasn't, it, yes, it was out of necessity, but I've always believed in it. I always believed that the, the program has a transcendent value has a transcendent intrinsic value and has been worthy of my modest efforts precisely because of it. Well, that's its, it's symbolic value, but what about, um, what kind of role did it play in this, in this what you call this cottage industry of creative writing in the United States? Well, creative writing itself was very much a creature of 60s counterculture. And, and so there's that connection. When I came into the profession, I, at first I was a student. You know, my, my mentors were really the, the, the second generation of creative writers, of, of, of professor poets, I'll say. The, the Phil Levines and, and, and Galway Canells and, and, and Denise Levertovs and Carolyn Kaisers were, were, were really the f first generation. Yes, there were, you know, I mean, you go back you to Robert. You studied with them too, though. Yeah, the I mean, well, the, well they, they all became faculty of the Prague yeah. program at one time or another. But, uh, you know, I never studied with Phil directly, but, I, but his, his students were my mentors. Mm -hmm. When I came into the game, there was this incredible tension within most English departments between creative writing and, 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 the, and the scholarly faction, I'll mm -hmm. call it. And, uh, you know, and, and over time, creative writing has, you know, has, has really become central to English departments and has really kept them afloat, you know, institutionally, I mean, within, within humanities education. In the beginning, you know, creative you know writers were allowed into the academy, grudgingly, you know, and now now they're central. Uh, creative writing is central, and for better and for worse. Yeah. But I think that you know the, the ethos of, of the counterculture we, we find it both in in the origins of creative writing within within humanities education, and we see it also at, you know in, in in terms of you know the the cultural development you know in in, in the Czech Republic. Uh, particularly regarding the centrality of, of literature 
to the transition from from the old, you know, from from the communist regime to whatever we whatever it is now. I was I was reading over the you know the the most recent time I re- had to read through the manuscript again to for the manuscript of poetry. Yeah, well, yeah, the yeah, the yeah, the the the, uh, the essays. I, I was really kind of astonished at how often I referred uh, I, I make reference to yeah. Jarno Schlustig. He's really more central than I even realized. You know, after I wrote the book, we granted honorary doctorates. I think in two thousand seven. I can't. No, I think it was more like. Five. Yeah, you're right. I think it's 2005. Yeah, we, we have we, a record of that. Yeah, we do. We do. Website. We do on the website. That's right. Uh, we 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 were able to grant uh, honorary doctors from Western Michigan University to both Arnish Lustig and Václav Havel, and it was a culmination of of years of my trying to make something like this happen. So, in my role as an empresario, you know, it was one of the, it was probably the the highlight of my accomplishments. What. Arnos, who was obviously great buddies with with uh, Havel, uh, told me was that you know the reason he, uh, that he that indeed Havel relished this one because it was you know for his writing and the honorary doctorate says quite explicitly you know for his playwriting and not for it just being an outstanding citizen and mm-hmm. former dissident you know yeah, yeah. so yeah it was it was special. Can you talk a little about Arnos Lustig though, since you did mention him? Well, let me tell this story first. I remember Arnos telling me about the time, the first time he heard Hitler. His father was listening to the radio and he started laughing. His father started laughing. Arnos was maybe 12, 13, you know, something, 11, 12, somewhere in there. And his father said, come here. He gathered the family together, Arnos and his sister and, and, and his mother. And he said, listen to this. And they listened to Hitler giving a speech from Germany, obviously. And they all had some German so they could understand it. And they, and they, they all found it very, very funny. And, and I remember him telling that story, you know, in, in light of knowing that his family was subsequently rounded up, taken to Tetezin. He worked on the, rail, the, the rails leading from Tetezin to Auschwitz. His family was murdered, and uh, he somehow survived Auschwitz mainly because he was young and strong and could work. Well, the reason he survived was that fluke accident, right? That he was on a transport. Well, th- that ultimately, I mean, that that came later. But I mean, he got to that point because, mm-hmm. he, you know, he, he anyway, long story short, he was being transported to a death camp, another death camp. As the story goes, an allied plane thought that the train was a troop transport and bombed the engine. Uh, as a result of that... Uh, he was a, he and a friend were able to escape from the, from the car they were in, and as the story goes, everyone else was machine gunned. These two boys were able to make it into the woods and ultimately make it back into Prague, and in Prague were able joined the resistance uh, and and did that until the end of the war. And he was- 15 at that time? Yeah, you know, I don't know the exact uh, ages. He may have been 15, 16, maybe, 16, yeah. 17. And Darkness Cast No Shadow Ca- is the yeah. semi-autobiographical. Yeah, that's about. right. But then they don't survive. In that well, th- that's, you know, and that I remember asking him that question, right? I, you know, I said, Arnos, you know, those two boys are killed in, in at the, you know at the end of that novel. I said, why did they not survive even though you did and his 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 cryptic response was simply because they had to they had to die and it made a certain sense his his survival was a fluke if he had written the story the the way it it happened it would you know it would have been a happy ending mm. 
you know, and there should be no happy endings, you know, in, 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 this, in the telling of this. When did he get involved in the program? Honor, Arnos actually was involved uh, quite early on. It's interesting, he, ne- he never became a teacher of creative writing in the sense that other writers do, American writers. He, he, he developed his own system which was very odd. It was not, it was not your traditional workshop. Uh, it, was, it was what we now sometimes refer to as a, um, a generative workshop. Mm. You, know, he would, he, he, you know, he would give little assignments, um, usually based on having students read Aesop's fables. Mm. He, he, they would read fables and he would have them write uh, fables. And, and, he, and he continued this, this method, you know, right, right into the Prague program. You know, I, I, was, I was skeptical in the beginning as to how students would, would respond to this. But as it turns out, I felt like I got to the point where I was pretty good at noting those students who would flourish under that particular re- regime. And it, and it worked. You know, uh, this, you know he, students loved him. Um, of course, I always worried about sexual harassment uh, issues with him, not because he was a harasser so much as he was simply a, a, a lusty man of a certain age who, uh, who, who had been socialized and, uh, differently than, than most folks who thrive in academe these days, we'll say. But he was beloved. He was beloved by everyone, he, even strident and, and militant feminists who would get into his classes, they'd come out, you know, just loving this guy, you know. And, and uh, so he, he, was, he was a remarkable human being. And uh, as time goes on, I think one of the strongest influences on, on my life more than my work. Well, he wasn't without his critics, though. He had, sure, he had his critics. He had his critics, you know, and, and, and uh, yeah. But, well, you mean his literary critics? No, no, no. Well, no, personal critics. Yeah. People who criticized the way that he kind of, uh, I don't know, used the fact uh, that he was a Holocaust survivor, maybe in ways that were a little bit glib sometimes. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing is that that's what Arnold was. He was he was a, a performer, yeah. really. He had this effect on people that was that went beyond uh, what... Um, a lot of the, the what he represented in his behavior. <laughs> he he was he was charismatic. I mean yeah. that, that's that okay. that's the term. You know, it's it's that elusive quality mm-hmm. that some people have and many don't. You know, mm-hmm. but Arnold was definitely charismatic. Yeah. I remember the time. Let me get, get personal here. It was uh, when Annie was maybe Annie, my middle sister. your middle sister. Yeah, Annie, our your younger sister. Annie was maybe five, maybe four. We, you know, we were we were uh, in Prague, and of course, and um, and 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 Annie was c- cutting something up with with uh, with the rounded scissors, and the TV was on, and then Arnos came on the TV and was talking to puppets. <laughs> Check TV, talking to puppets, and I and I said I said I remember saying Annie, look, it's Arnos, and she looked up from whatever she was destroying with these scissors, and she said. Yeah, they're 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 talking about. And I can't remember what she said. You know, she said they're talking about fairies or mm-hmm. something like that. I said okay, and she said this of course because even at four or five she knew how <laughs> how bad my facility with the language was. So she 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 you know and 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 that was it. And then she went back to destroying whatever she was destroying. <laughs> and and but 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 it just you know I, what kind of what kind of cultural icon are you if you're a Holocaust novelist? who goes on children's shows and talks to puppets. 
I mean, you must have a pretty good relation to that cultural context, you know. Mm-hmm. And I remember he was thoroughly enjoying himself talking to puppets. I yeah. don't think that would happen today. I mean, I think also it yeah. the 90s were... You know, it was the Wild West in the 90s, kind of. You know, this was that that time here for, you know, the, within the expat community, within all that within all that cultural diffusion that was going on between the expats and the, you know, and just the rest of the world in this, in this, in this incredibly rich culture, culture center that had been ice, relatively isolated for so long. You know, it, it, it was, it was incredible. It was an incredible time, you know, and, and um, I feel very fortunate to have uh, lived a good chunk of my life during that time. I mean, I just, I realized that um, growing up, around him and those those stories had a huge impact on how I see the world. The The story that stuck with me the most was um, after the war. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was 16. I mean, he had missed so much school. That yeah. was one thing that was so interesting that he had to make up for all this time that he wasn't in school. That's right. Um, crucial time. And he was really kind of an autodidact because of that. Um, but anyway, the, the story yeah. that, that stuck with me was after the war, he mm-hmm. was just sort of... Uh, you know, floating around, really. I mean, he didn't have a family, anything. Yeah. And he witnessed some people murdering Germans in the street. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were, like, tar- tarring and feathering them and setting, you know, mm-hmm. Germans on fire. And he um, went up to one of these people that was doing this and, and said, what are you doing? I mean, because he, he had seen so mm-hmm. much violence. Right. He just didn't want to see any more. But anyway, when he de- kind yeah. of defended these these people being murdered um he, you know he himself was was almost attacked so anyway i mean that just yeah. to me as a, as a well child, you know i learned at a, at a young age the kind of moral ambiguity of yeah these, of these yeah things. i mean you know my i you know one of my favorite stories i'm sure he's written about this somewhere but but what i know this is the anecdote that i'm getting ready to share just from conversation with him and that is that that he you know when he first got to auschwitz he was told to stand with his group of older men and he was told to strip and so they stripped in the winter it was winter time they stripped down naked and were told just to stand there and and after a while the these older jewish men looked at this boy this skinny boy and they came around and they and they pressed their bodies around him to keep him warm Mm -hmm. and and it's one of those miraculous human events i don't doubt it for a second i don't doubt it for a second and 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 it it really is one of those one of those events you know in 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 a person's memory that 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 affirms humanity you know in the midst of so much that is inhumane and, and wretched. What you said earlier about Arnost um, being perceived as someone who who was rather cavalier in his in, in the marshalling of the of of the uh, persona of, of 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 a survivor of of a Holocaust survivor, you know. I, I, to some extent, yes, but it was also, you know, he, he, I, I think that there was a fundamental level on which he perceived himself as having a, a moral responsibility born of the fact that he did survive and, and that he, he represented the dead. Mm. He, you know, he was a representative of the dead. At the core of it was, was, it was a sense of, um, of, 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 of responsibility. And that, 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 as much as anything, determined the fact that, that he, he wrote only about mm. his, his life, you know, during that time. Mm. 
this educational industry, which is so central to the creative writing industry yeah. um, as such, it is an to me an interesting phenomenon in and of itself, yeah. which has, does have its issues. I think. Sure, sure. How how does it benefit those who don't quote unquote succeed? I guess. Oh well, you know, um, I don't know what succeed me. I mean, yeah. you know, it, it, if it, you know, first of all, if, if there is anyone in this business who's telling students that, you know, this is a good career move. <laughs> Such an individual should be taken outside and beaten about the legs and arms with, with socks full of pennies. You know, I mean, it's, you know, it's just, it's just wrong. You know, and no, creative writing at its best is a feature of literary education. And one's liter and a literary education is a feature more broadly of, of a humanities education. You know, when you begin to specialize in creative writing, it seems to me, is, is when, when one is most challenged in, in justifying it. You know, there was a growth period when the English departments were taking in, you know, were actively attracting writers to come in and be a part of the uh, the English department curriculum. It goes through phases. There are times when the market is saturated and times when it's when it, when there are openings and um, you know, it's been highly competitive for a long time. There's been a certain entrepreneurial aspect to the growth of creative writing within English departments, within, you know, within uh, and within universities, therefore, generally. I think we're beyond that entrepreneurial phase, obviously, I mean, by a couple of decades, probably. You know, the, the question no longer is, you know, what is the relevancy of creative writing, but rather, what is the relevancy and what is the future of of literary studies as such mm -hmm. you know re regarding audience regarding technology regarding you know culture you know all, you i know. mean that is an interesting question is how technology because i i believe that multimedia i mean well I, it's not just me i think everyone really who understands what's going on mm -hmm. believes that multimedia are the future of all the arts really well it already um, is it i mean it's, it's not it's not right. even but 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 well, the the desire to tell a story yeah. be, be begins with you know, with with at least a willingness to be to be alone, oh, yeah. because you know it's not a, because write, writing is not collab. I mean, okay. it, it is collaborative, and 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 creative writing really is you know highlights the ways in which it may be collaborative. Mm -hmm. No, no, I, I you know I, I I think you know the, the individual storyteller, the individual declaimer. You know, uh, you know, will all you know, that will all, you know th that will always be a feature of human interaction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, as far as what we choose to call art. No, but th that's interesting that you define it as as solitary as opposed to collaborative, which so many of the other art forms are. Really, yeah, most of them. You know, it, it is it is out of out of that condition of aloneness, not loneliness, but aloneness that that the lyric impulse emerges. And it's the the lyric impulse stands behind lyric poetry, of course, but all 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 tale telling, you know, mm -hmm. all storytelling. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, anyway, but nowadays that aloneness can be uh, pursued even in different mediums, and I think media. that's some, media. Mm -hmm. But and I think that that's something that probably should be confronted in the creative writing departments more so than it is. Considering where technology has gone and how mm -hmm. and how accessible it is now, just as the theater mm -hmm. and live performance has confronted its uh, the permeability of its genres, mm -hmm. I think that, mm -hmm. that, that uh, creative writing kind of has to confront that as well. Well, yeah, but you know, it, it, the, the thing is, if you're going to write poetry, if you're going to write fiction, if you're going to write personal essays, you have to have a strong sense of the history of the form. 
in the evolution of the form. And that doesn't preclude anything. I no, think. no, no. But it, well, what, what it means, you can spend a lot of time reading. Right now, I mean, I, you know, especially over the past 20 years or so, it's been particularly true that my students, the, the, their sense of narrative comes from visual media, mm. not from their reading. They, yes, they're readers. Hmm. They have primarily visual imaginations, hmm. which could be good, you know, but, but language nuance, a sense of the history of ideas yeah. as reflected in literature, but also in philosophy hmm. uh, and, and, and historical documents is, is often not there. Yeah. You know, and and uh, and and that's really what they if if they're going to be writers, mm. you know, that that's what they're going to have to center their lives on is reading mm. and understanding that the, you know that this that there's a dy- you know this dynamic dialectic between um, you know b- between reading and writing. I hope you enjoyed that convo, though I guess the last part of the conversation isn't really finished. The musical interludes feature the melody of You Are My Sunshine, a classic American song which my father remembers his entire family singing together in the car when they were on the road, fleeing from the law. Here's to being on the verge.